0: All right, well, I'm excited to be back here to continue our series called Building a Trellis. I named it that because a lot of you are probably wondering, what in the world are you talking about building a trellis? So if you're here last week, you know. If you weren't here last week, you're probably curious, and I'll tell you a little bit later. That's just a way to kind of bait your up. I'll tell you a little bit to say, what in the world is this guy going to talk about building a trellis in church? But before we talk about building a trellis, I thought we would talk about William Shakespeare, some of you are like, oh boy, you're bringing me back to high school. Don't know if I really like that. And Some of you might wonder who in the heck is William Shakespeare, so let me tell you. William Shakespeare was an English poet, playwright, and actor, widely regarded as the greatest writer in the English language, and the world's greatest dramatist who died in the early 1600s. Thank you, Wikipedia. That's who William Shakespeare is. I didn't pay so much attention to Shakespeare in high school, so this is not going to be a class in Shakespeare. Instead, I'm going to talk about Shakespeare because N.T. Wright uses Shakespeare as an analogy for an illustration. So let me bounce you over to N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is a New Testament scholar from Scotland, very smart man. The man has probably written more books than years I am old, and I just don't know how some people just can keep out coming out with book after book, but he anyway, writes. N.T. Wright writes this uh, wonderful book, and in this book, he makes this analogy uh, about uh, Shakespeare and about five acts of a Shakespeare play to help us understand the Bible. So this is the analogy N.T. Wright lays out to help us understand the Bible and how to study the Bible. N.T. Wright says, imagine if somebody found a five-act play by William Shakespeare, and the first four acts are there, but you're missing the fifth act. What would you do? Obviously, a lot of people who really love Shakespeare would be very excited because you've got act one, two, three, and four, you're missing five, and so you have a quest to understand how would that first four acts of the play go and how would the play actually finish. Now, you have a few options in that situation. Number one, you could look at the situation and say, well, I really don't care and walk away. Or you could say, that's very intriguing and I would like to know what Act Five is. So, you know what I'll do? I'll just write the conclusion to the play, and you go ahead and just write it on your own knowledge. Or, what you could do is which is the best option? You could study Act One, Two, Three, and Four really good. And she could gather a bunch of people together that really understand William Shakespeare and understand his work and maybe have acted in one of his productions and say to them, okay, you act out act one, two, three, and four. And based on the information that you have from those acts, then act out scene five. That's probably the best way you could probably make a conclusion of a william shakespeare play based on the authority and the integrity of the information that you already have and then you would act out the last scene what you would call that is improv sometimes people think improv means you just kind of wing it but improv actually means you take the information that you already have and based on the information that you have you act out the next scene so nt wright sets that up says what would you do in that situation you have a play missing one act. How would you, what would you do? And his answer is, you would study the first four acts. Based on that information, you would act out scene five. So then N.T. Wright says, okay, consider this. The Bible can actually be divided up into five scenes. You have scene one, which is creation. You have scene two, which is the fall. You have scene three, which is the nation of Israel, and this is God starts a story of redemption between, with Abraham. You have act five, which is Jesus, and then act four, which is Jesus, and act five is the church. It's the new people. And N.T. Wright talks about the fact that we have these five acts, but you will notice in the Bible there is a big gap between Jesus on earth and the Jesus that's going to come back again. And that is the place each of us lives. The Bible tells us all about Jesus, what he came to do, and then Jesus leaves. And the Bible kind of wraps up a little bit in the book of Acts after that and the, and uh, some of the early apostles. And then you have a gap. And we're living in that gap right now, waiting for Jesus to come back. And the question for all of us is, how do we live in this gap period? How do we live between Act 4 and 5? And kind of like the illustration said, we have a lot of the information to know how to live in this gap we have act one. We have creation, fall, Israel, and Jesus. And we have that area of our life, that, that knowledge of the Bible or the authority of the scripture there. But how do we act as we're waiting for Christ to return? Each of us is in that situation. We're waiting for Christ to return. And what we all would love is if the Bible had a lot more detailed information of what we're supposed to do on a daily basis. The Bible gives us enough information that it gives us all the information that we need but doesn't give us all the information that we really want. Because if you look in the scripture, you're not going to find somebody that has your exact personality and your exact circumstances and your exact situation that you can go to the Bible and say, okay, that's exactly the decision I need to make right now. Instead, what we do while we live in this gap period is we have to rely on what we have learned from Act 1, 2, 3, and 4. So what do we call this place that we live in right now, this kind of gap where we don't have all the information we want? See, all throughout the uh, New Testament, the Gospels, Jesus would refer to this gap as the kingdom of God. Through the Gospels, you'd hear Jesus over and over again say, talk about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, which basically he meant the same thing. Over 80 times in the Gospels, Jesus would refer to the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of God is here or the kingdom of God is drawn near to you. What in the world does Jesus mean when he's talking to people and saying the kingdom of God has come near to you and has come close to you? Before I answer that, I want to start out by saying, what, talking about one of, the most popular, one of the most popular verses in the Bible is Matthew 4, verse 17, when Jesus says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What does Jesus mean by that when he's saying to people, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near? I think the first thing we have to understand is what does that word repent even mean? See, often we use the word repent to mean we're confessing of a sin. That we have admitted a sin and we repent and say that's wrong and tell God we're sorry for that. Okay, that is part of the definition of sin. But the definition of repent is much broader than just confession of a sin. I'm going to read the quote by Dean Pinter in the story of the Bible commentary. I think this gives us a good understanding of what repent really means. He says the Greek words for repent and repentance literally refers to experiencing a change of mind. This implies that one's thinking is going in the wrong direction. And to go in the right direction, one must stop and go in a different way. Repentance requires reorientation. Repentance can involve confession of sin, but as he talks about the illustri- what he talks about in this quote is repentance is much broader than just confessing a sin. But repentance is a way to look at things in a whole different way. Repentance involves adapting or acknowledging a new perspective. So when Jesus is saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, he's inviting people to live into a different kingdom. What God is coming to his disciples and saying, you live one way, but I'm inviting you to live in my kingdom. And in my kingdom, you're going to have to act different, you're going to have to think different, and you're going to have to believe different. And in fact, all of your perspectives are going to change dramatically when you live in the new kingdom. So God is inviting people into living in his kingdom. And so the kingdom of God is reserved for people who have decided to submit their life to Jesus Christ and want to live in his kingdom. So we have a choice to make. Do you want to live in the kingdom of God, where Jesus is your ruler? Or do you want to live outside of the kingdom of God? And that is what Jesus presents over and over in the Gospels. What kingdom do you want to live in? But when Jesus says to people, do you want to live in the kingdom of God, he's telling them, your life is going to be very different. A lot of living in the kingdom of God is extremely counterintuitive. See, in our American culture, we are used to life is like a ladder. And success is on the top, and failure is on the bottom. In our American culture, we want to get to that top of the ladder no matter what. In America culture, we strive to be on the top of the ladder. We strive for success. And the last thing that we want to do is be on the lower part of the ladder with anything familiar with failure. But then Jesus comes on the scene, and he does something really different. He likes to hang out at the bottom of the ladder. Jesus isn't interested in ascending to the top of the ladder. Jesus likes the bottom of the ladder. He likes to be with people that can't climb up the ladder very well. Jesus could have been on top of the ladder. He had the ability. He had the capability. He had the divine power. But he chose to be at the bottom of the ladder. Jesus could have been first in everything he did, but instead he decided to put other people first and to help them get up the ladder to find success in their life. So the kingdom of God is this completely different perspective to a way of thinking. Because you know what it says in the Gospels? It talks about if you want glory, you need to humble yourself. It says if you want to be first, you need to be last. It says if you want to live, you need to die. Everything in the Gospels that Jesus pre- talks about in this new in this new kingdom is radically different from the way we think, and it's radically different from our perspectives. And that is a kingdom that we live in between Act Four and Act Five. We live in this kingdom of God where everything's different. So God says to us, "You're going to have to think different." You're going to have to do a lot of repentance, not just of your sin, but you're going to repent for the way you look at things because your perspective is going to be radically different living in the kingdom of God. So that begs the question, how do you live in this kingdom? You're going to need to improvise, not wing it. You're going to have to take the information that you know from the Bible Apply it to your life so you can live while we wait for Christ to come back and restore all things. So in order for you to improvise, I want to talk about three things that we need to do in our life when we approach the Bible. These are three strategic keys that we need to have every time we open our Bible. The first is we need to understand who is the king. If we have to live in this kingdom, who is the king? The second thing we have to understand is who am I? and The third thing I have to understand is how do I relate to the king? If we understand these three areas, it's going to help us live in this kingdom. And that's the point of the series today, is to talk about spiritual formation. Spiritual formation is this process or this journey where God takes us on to become more like Christ. And we do this by not being bystanders. Instead, we become active participants in our life, seeking to understand who is a king, seeking to understand who we are, and seeking to understand how I relate to the king. Now, if we went back 2,000 years ago to the early followers of Jesus, to his early disciples, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. When you look back in the early disciples of Jesus, these men and women who had followed Jesus, they had three goals in mind. Their first goal was that they wanted to be with Jesus. Their second goal they had is they wanted to become like Jesus. And the third goal that they had was they wanted to do what Jesus did. And disciples of Jesus Christ, nothing has changed in three years. These three things that describe a disciple are the same three things that would describe each of us today as followers of Jesus. That we want to be with Jesus, that we want to become like Jesus, and that we want to do what Jesus has done. That is our goal, is to become more and more like Christ, to do what he has called us to do. And that just doesn't happen without a little bit of our effort. There are some things that God has called each of us to do so we can become more like Jesus. But just as like it was 2,000 years ago, we live with a lot of distractions. We live in a world and we live in a culture that is trying to constantly distract us from putting Christ first in everything we do. Instead, the world is constantly begging us to look over here or look over there or to find a different way to go. And the Bible is always inviting us to come back. So that's why last week I brought up this concept. I, brought, I started talking about spiritual formation. And I talked, my first part of spiritual formation was I talked about the, this, this topic called a rule of life. A rule of life is simply an, an, an intentional, conscious plan to keep God at the center of everything we do. In fact, this, this, this topic of a rule of life actually, some people trace it back to first and century Christianity they trace it back to even you know, shortly after the time of Christ where people were being distracted from following Christ so they developed a rule of life which is a philosophy or a pattern or a set of habits that you do to keep Christ first in your life. Some people even trace it back to John Calvin and the early reformers, the whole concept of practicing a rule of life. And basically this is what a rule of life is. You look at your life, you look at your situation, and you say, okay, how am I going to put God first in everything in my life? It's not going to happen just if I just stand back and do nothing. But instead, I'm going to have to be a little bit strategic in doing this. There's four different areas that a rule of life should impact each of us. And these four areas are prayer and our spiritual life. Second is our rest and our relaxation. Third area is our relationship and our community. And the fourth is our work and career. These are the four areas of your life that consume most of your day. And a rule of life simply says, how do you put Christ first in every one of those areas? Because the fact is, most of us, we have a prayer life, a spiritual life. Okay, we, we pray. We go to church. We might do a Bible study. We, we have different rhythms or patterns that we do in our spiritual life. But what do you do in your rest and your relaxation time to put Christ first? What do you do with your relationships in your community when you go out with your friends to put Christ first? Or what do you do when you're at the office or your career, at your work, to put Christ first? And a rule of life is simply a way to say, I have to be intentional about keeping Christ first in these different areas of my life. Maybe setting up a different pattern or different rhythms in your life that you can make sure Christ is first. And I'll tell you what, that, the, the concept of a rule of life is, it, it's, It gets confusing, I think, sometime in our American culture, because when we think rule, we think rules. And we don't like rules. So it's better to kind of say patterns or rhythms or or disciplines, but it's a technical term, rule of life, so we're going to stick with the term rule of life. But think of it as patterns, as habits. What do you do in these areas of your life to keep Christ first? So last week we talked about these things, and kind of last week our message, I I would say it's one of those 30,000 feet messages, which you're hovering above your life and looking down and saying, okay, let's evaluate our life. Let's evaluate how we do do our Christianity. Let's evaluate it. And this week what I want to do is drop down and say, okay, what are strategic things that we can do in our life? To better our relationship with Jesus Christ, what are strategic things that we can do in our life, that we would become more like Christ, that we become more like a disciple. But before I do that, I will tell you, why do I call this building a trellis? So if you weren't here last week, I will teach you a little bit of Latin. So in the, word, in the word rule in Latin actually is regula. Think Regulations. So in Latin, the word rule is regula for regulations. And the regula would refer to a long piece of wood, also called the ruler, and also called a trellis. So a rule in Latin refers to building a trellis. In the, a couple weeks ago in our sermon series, we talked about John 15, where God says, I am the vine and you are the branches. In order for a vine to survive and a vine to live, it has to be hung on a trellis. Vines naturally grow on the ground. And when you grow on the ground, you don't bear any fruit because you're gonna die from the ground, from the dirt, the humidity, and all the other stuff on the ground. In order for a vine to live, it has to hang on a trellis. So I'm calling this series Building a Trellis because there's things that we need to do in our life that are gonna help us bear fruit and are gonna help us ultimately become more like Christ. So that is the name. See, the reality of this series is the fact that someone or something or some event in your life is influencing every single thing that you do. There's no way around it. Someone or something or some event is influencing everything you do and therefore it's causing and determining how you're going to make decisions, how you're going to live, how you're going to process, how you're going to live in community, how you're going to live in those four different areas of your life. But the goal of spiritual formation is it's to say, let's make sure God and Jesus Christ are influencing every area of your life so the enemy doesn't have a way to lead you. So spiritual formation comes in and says, let's make sure God is the center of your life, that He is shaping how you become. So the spiritual formation is going to give you the tools and the power of the Holy Spirit to come overcome any negative event or situation that has happened in your life. So today I want to look at the Bible, and how do we study the Bible, and how do we read the Bible, and how do we absorb the Bible, and how do we glean information from the Bible. I know a lot of times when people approach the Bible, when you read the Bible, it can actually be kind of discouraging. Because I think if some of you are honest, including me, you would say, I read that scripture and it made absolutely no sense to me. Or I spent time reading the Bible and when I'm done, I, I really don't know what it means. And I tried looking for meaning, and I really don't know what it means. And sometimes reading the Bible can actually be a little bit frustrating because you're not sure what it really means. And sometimes it even seems a little inconsist- inconsistent with other parts of the Bible. And it's easy to read the Bible and get done and just say, I have no idea what I just read. And that's easy to say, I don't even know why I read the Bible. Sometimes when we read the Bible, sometimes we're just looking for information because we're so taught in in our culture that you need more information to learn. Instead, the Bible is designed to be a book that's not just a bunch of information, but it's a book about transformation. The Bible's more interested in transforming your life and then just giving you a bunch of information. But I think the Bible is also interested in making you struggle with it. God could have made it a little bit easier to read, could have made it a little bit more straightforward, but sometimes I think what God's design is, is that you would take the Bible and you'd read it and you'd actually struggle with it. You'd struggle to wonder, what does this really mean? What is the Bible really saying? That's what I want to talk about today, about how do you approach the Bible when you read it and you're like, I'm not really sure what this means. This morning I want to read a passage to you from 2 Timothy verse 3, and I'm going to read the whole chapter. And This is one of those chapters that is kind of encouraging to read because it's very straightforward. You're reading this chapter, and you will not be surprised if somebody said to you, yeah, this was just added last week because this just happened a couple weeks ago, because this letter feels like it's just hot off the presses, like Paul actually just wrote it. So join me when I read 2 Timothy 3 should be in your outline, or you can follow along as I read on the overhead, or it's a long one. So this is a letter from Paul to his young uh, pupil, Timothy. It said, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be, be very difficult times, for people will love only themselves and their money. They will boast and be proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving, and they will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. They are the kind who work their way into people's homes and win their confidence of undesirable women who are burdened with guilt of sin and controlled by various desires. Such women are forever following the new teachings, but they're never able to understand the truth. These teachers oppose the truth just as Jans and Jammers oppose Moses. They have depraved minds and counterfeit faith. They won't get away with this for long. Someday everyone will recognize what fools they are, just as Jans and Jammers. And just for the record, Jans and Jammers are sorcerers. They are people that practice occultic powers that went up against Moses. So that's who he's talking about, He's worrying about these people that are um, practicing in the occult. Then on with verse 10, it says, But you, Timothy, certainly know what I teach and how I live, and my purpose in life is. You know my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance. You know how much persecution and suffering I have endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. But the Lord rescued me from it all. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil people and imposters will flourish. They will deceive others and will themselves be deceived. But you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the holy scriptures from childhood, and they, all give, and they have all given you wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God, and it's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. As I said earlier, this chapter is very relatable. This is, sounds like kind of a good description of what is happening in our culture in the year 2020. You read this chapter and it sounds very familiar. And basically what Paul is saying to Timothy is you've got to be really careful, Timothy. Because you have a culture and you have a world that is trying to shape you to become like that world. And Timothy, you're going to have to be counterintuitive. You're going to have to think different. You're going to have to act different. You're going to have to behave different than the, world that, than the way the world's leading you on. In verse 14, Paul begins by saying, Timothy, you know, you've had the advantage of knowing the Holy Scriptures from childhood. He's saying, Paul, you're raised, or Timothy, you're raised with the Scriptures and you know what to do with them. Timothy did have a good advantage. He knew the scriptures early in life. But for some of us who didn't have the advantage of Timothy, it can be kind of a struggle to know what to do with the Bible when you get to be an older age. And you wonder how to read the Bible and what to do with the Bible. Sometimes it can be a little intimidating to read the Bible. Or when you read Paul's exhortation to Timothy that all scriptures and inspired by God and it will change your life and you kind of wonder will the Bible actually change my life if I don't understand it that well you kind of sometimes struggle with how much of the Bible do I have to really know for it to really change my life and I think because of these attitudes and experiences that we have sometimes we read the Bible as a last resort it's usually not our go-to book but sometimes we read the Bible just because well it alleviates us from some guilt Sometimes we feel like, well, that's what I'm supposed to do, so I'll do it. But it's generally not the book you're going to go to firsthand to help you in your problems. I think that can change. I think it can change, and it should change for each of us. But it's going to take a little process that we call spiritual formation. It's going to take a little discipline. But I want to talk about that in this message today. I want to talk about these three keys of how to approach the Bible. Because I think when you approach the Bible through this perspective, it's going to actually help you absorb a little bit more what's in the Bible. So let me first get started with you and answer the question, well, what is the Bible? What is the purpose of the Bible? Before I tell you how to read the Bible, I probably should say, what is the purpose of the Bible? And I recognize for some of you this is a lot of review, but I hopefully you'll pick up something fun in this uh this message. So uh, the easiest way to say what is the Bible it's very simply it's a book about Jesus. The Bible is a book about Jesus even though his name is not mentioned in every chapter of the Bible every single book of the Bible is all about Jesus and it's designed to reveal who Jesus is and to help us understand how we can follow Jesus. So at its simplest the Bible is a book about Jesus. So then again, it's what is the Bible for? There's a lot of different ways I can answer this, but to stay with the analogy that I brought up in the beginning, the Bible is to help us understand how do we live in the kingdom of God? How do we live between the time of Jesus on earth and the time that Jesus is coming back? How do we live in this area? How do we live in this part of, the, in the part of history when we don't have Jesus physically present with us, even though we have the power of his Holy Spirit? But how do we live at this time? So again, I'm going to go back to the three things, the three questions I think are helpful to ask every time we open the Bible, is number one, who is the king, who am I, and how do I relate to the king? See, it's very important for us to know and understand the Bible, because as Timothy encouraged um, Paul, no, as Paul encouraged Timothy, it was going to be active for his transformation, in it? So when you open up the Bible, we should expect transformation, so... I want to continue by reading a quote by uh, Joel Green, and I think this helps us understand a little bit more of the power of transformation that should happen in the Bible. Reading the Scriptures should be an exercise in our submission to God. Again, living in the kingdom of heaven is submitting to Jesus Christ. We don't read simply for information, but for formation. And that should be a comfort to some of you who are like, reading is not my first skill. It's a hard thing for me. That when you read the Bible, it's not just for information, but for formation formation. We read this so the scriptures will shape us to be more and more like Christ. Spiritual formation is not measured by how much we know about the Bible or how often we read the Bible, but by the way we follow Jesus. This is the bottom line. We can be familiar with much of the Bible and still not love or follow Jesus. See, the goal of spiritual formation isn't to make you be more disciplined in your studies. Instead, the goal of spiritual formation is to make you more like Christ. But this is a big problem that we have. Sometimes we end up with a God that looks a little bit more like us than we look like the God that we're trying to serve. What I mean by this is sometimes we have a tendency to make God like us instead of we becoming like God. There's a saying, and this is kind of a fun saying. It says, God created man in his own image, and man, being a gentleman, returned the favor. God said, I'm going to create you in my image, and we turned around and said, no, God, I want you to be more like me. Because sometimes it's easier when you have a God that's more like me because then he doesn't tell you what to do you can always be the person that's right. And that is a problem sometime in our culture, especially when you get into politics. People all think that God looks just like them. See, our goal is to be like Christ and to do what Christ did. So the first thing that we have to understand is who is the king? See, I don't have time this morning to go into a full uh, understanding of exactly who is God and everything about that. Instead, I want to talk about some of his attributes and say when we approach the Bible, it's one of the questions that we say, where is the king in this chapter? What is the king doing and what is the king saying? See, H. W. Tozer, he was a 20th century writer and another prolific writer. He says, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's an interesting statement to say, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why is it the most important thing? Because see, who we think about who God is is going to shape the way we behave. If we think God is loving and compassionate and merciful, we're going to act loving and compassionate. But if we think God is filled with hatred, we're going to act that way. If we think God is mean and arrogant, we're gonna act that way. If we think God's angry all the time, we're gonna be angry all the time. If we think God doesn't like a certain people group, we're not gonna like that people group either. So it's imperative that we understand God's heart and that we understand God's compassion. Because what we think about God is gonna determine how we think and how we behave even if we're dead wrong in what we think about God. Our view and interpretation of God will influence every area of our life. In Exodus 34, this is most, one of the most powerful scriptures in the Bible. This is actually one of the most quoted scriptures in the Bible and other places. God comes on scene, he's with Moses, and God is going to reveal himself in a powerful way with this description. One of the very first times, God's going to sit down and say, who I am. So this is really good. It says, then then the Lord came down in the cloud and he stood there with Moses and he proclaimed his name. He said, I am the Lord. Other translations say I am Yahweh, which is better. And then it says, and the Lord passed in front of Moses proclaiming, I am the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and the gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. When God comes on this scene, the first thing that he says about himself is, I am compassionate. That's good. That's a relief for a lot of us. It's probably a relief for every single person in the room that the first way God chooses to reveal himself is saying, I'm compassionate. and I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in love and faithfulness. I maintain love to thousands, and I forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sins. That's pretty good news, that the God that pursues you, the God who wants to have a relationship with you, the first thing he says is I'm a God of compassion. When he reveals himself as a God of compassion, he's doing that for one reason, because he wants a relationship with you. And he wants a deeper relationship with you. He doesn't say I'm a God of rules and law. He doesn't say I'm a God who's angry at you. He says, I'm a God of compassion. And that's who the king is. And that's the king that we should look for every time we read the Bible. Even when you read those Old Testament stories that you're like, this doesn't make any sense. Look for the compassionate king. Because he's there in every single story. Look for the king when you read the Bible. Ask God to show you where the king is if you can't find the king. That's what he wants you to do. See, N.T. Wright has this beautiful quote. He says, The Bible isn't simply a repository of true information about God, Jesus, and the hope of the world. It is, rather, part of the means by which, in the power of the Holy Spirit, the living God rescues his people and his world and takes them forward on the journey towards this new creation and makes us agent of a new creation even as we travel. That's what the Bible's about. It's this journey of recreation that the God wants to take you on. The Bible reaches out to each of us and says, I wanna take you on this journey and I'm gonna lead you with compassion. That's the good news of the king. He's looking to take each of us on a journey that's led with compassion. That's the kind of king I want to follow. But we have to get rid of those ideas in our head, what we think the king is like. It's the second thing we do. We ask that we look in the scripture, we say, who's the king? The next thing we say is, Who am I? Who am I? When we relearn who God is, then we can sometimes start to begin who we are. But this is our challenge. We live in a world. And a culture. That is constantly putting labels on us. We live in a world and a culture that's trying to define us by our political persuasion. Are you a Democrat? Or are you a Republican? Are you country or are you city? Are you a business person or a blue collar? Are you hip and cool? Or kind of old and Fox News. I should not have let that slip in there (laughs) until I visited my mother last night. (laughs) Are you an artist? Are you the accounting person? Are you straight? Are you gay? Are you transgender? Are you urban? What are you? See, our world's always trying to take those areas of our life and say, that is how you behave, so that is who you are. Our world's constantly trying to take things about us and say, okay, that is you, who you are. And sometimes, you know what? People don't like who they are. So we have this whole problem in our country. We have fake news. Now we have fake identities because we like to create them. We can create a fake identity online. Some people do that on purpose. They get a nice little screenshot, a nice little filter. And you can become anybody you want to become. And we have a world that is craving to understand what is their identity, who are they. And the world is telling us every day, that's who you are, that's who you are. And Jesus comes on scene and says, all of that information is wrong. None of that information is right. That's what the Bible says about who you are. It says, don't listen to what the world says about you. Instead, the Bible says, you're a child of the king. Now that's radical. That book's about the king and suddenly the Bible's saying, you're a child of the king. Listen to what it says in Genesis in the very first chapter. It says, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God created you in his image to be his children. And that is who we are. So when you read the Bible, you need to look and say, where am I in this story? And what does this Bible say about me? You have to read the Bible and look for clues on who you are and who you are supposed to be in the kingdom. See, that sometimes takes repentance to know who you are. To know how you live in the kingdom to know how to live in the identity that God has given you, not the identity the world's given you. Cuz that's not going to get you very far. And that's where that repentance comes in, renew your mind. You have to think of yourself as the way God created you, not as the world has informed you of who you are. And that's the beautiful part of the picking up the Bible and saying, "Where am I in this story and what is my identity in the story?" And then the last thing we wrap this up with is the question of how do I relate to the king? If he's the king and I'm the child of the king, how do I relate to him? And this is this beautiful journey that we're gonna go on in spiritual formation that we started talking about last week, that we're talking about this week, and keep on going and studying different ways of how we be more, become more like Christ. We become more like the child of the king that we are created to be. And this is a journey that we get to go on. This is the fun stuff about being a Christian, is when you discover who you are. Because most people intuitively know when you discover who you are, you're going to find your true joy and happiness. You find your true joy and happiness when you become and you understand and you start believing and you start acting and you start thinking like the child of the king. That's what spiritual formation does. You get to be you. You don't have to be somebody else. You get to be you, and you're happy being you. You're not trying to be somebody else. You're happy because you understand you're the child of the king, and you understand how God created you and how he wants you to be. That's this journey that we're going to go on. So when you open up the Bible, look for the king. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you. Where's the king in this chapter? Where am I in this chapter? And how do I relate to the king? See, once you begin to understand he's the king, you're the child, and then you know what you start doing? You start going to God and asking him to supply you with what you need. Because see, the Bible tells us that he's a good father. And the good father gives to his children exactly what they need. In Philippians 4, it says, but my God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory by Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible set up to do, to supply every single One of our needs, everything we need, is found through our relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what the Bible wants us to see. So when we get up in the morning, you can go and open up your Bible and start praying to God and saying, God, what do I need today? You may get up in the morning, and you're like, I'm already unsettled. Then God's going to supply that need to help you settle down. You might find yourself anxious. God's going to give you peace. You might find yourself worried about medical tests. God's going to give you peace. God wants to be the one to supply every single need that you have. Because God knows something. If we don't find our needs met in him, we're going to wander someplace and look for it to found someplace else. And I think every one of us has probably wandered off a little bit and found our needs met where they should not be met. And God is constantly inviting us, come back to the kingdom. Live in this kingdom. You got to think different. You got to act different. You got to behave different. And in this kingdom, I'm going to supply every single one of your needs. That's what God's going to do for us. So when you open up your Bible in the morning, and I know it's tempting to say, I don't know what I read. Say, Holy Spirit, how are you going to supply my needs today as I read this? And then watch how God takes that information and makes a transformation in your life. That someday you'll get up in the morning and say, I don't know what I read, but something happened. That's what you can expect every single morning. So Jake and the team, why don't you come lead us in one more song? As Jake and Laura and Chad and Josh lead us in a song. Let's pray. And ask God to make this a reality in our life. That when we get up in the morning, we would look at the Bible and say, where is the king, where am I, and how does the king influence me? Because that will change your life. So, Father, I do thank you that you are the king. And I thank you that we are your children. And I thank you, God, that you reveal to us through compassion. God, I pray that your power and your spirit of compassion would rest on us today. Lord, I pray for any person here today that when they hear me say God's a God of compassion and they think, That's not what my experience is. That through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help to show them that you are the God of compassion and mercy. God, I pray that you'd renew our minds and help us to believe the truth of the scripture and that you'd root out of our lives and our minds anything that is not true or doesn't mesh up or follow the scripture. God, I pray that you'd speak to each person here today while we sing these closing songs. Would you show each person why you brought them here today? Would you show each person what you wanted for them to receive today? And that you would change our lives as we sing this song in Jesus' name. Amen.